I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. Here's your host, Tom Bourne. Welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. I'm your host, Tom Bourne. And with me today is Clive Lloyd. Now, Clive is one of my safety superheroes. I am absolutely honoured to have him on the show. He was recently named among the top five global thought leaders and influencers on health and safety by Thinkers360. He's the principal consultant and co-owner of GIST Consulting. His background is in coaching and psychology. Um, I can't, I could talk about him all day, but probably not what everyone wants to hear. Clive, how are you? I'm really good, Tom. Thanks for getting up so early to do this, mate. Oh, mate, anything to get good quality people on. Hey, um, I was just wondering if you could, you've spent an awful long time in safety industry. I'm just wondering if you could tell the listeners, what, what, what was the spark? What made you actually think about getting into health and safety from the word go? Look, I didn't, Tom. <laughs> I was almost dragged into it, kicking and screaming. So look, um, my background, you mentioned I'm a psychologist. My background is clinical psychology. So 20 odd years ago, I was working in a completely different field. In fact, I was working in the addictions Mm -hmm. and I was the clinical director of of the Gold Coast Drug Council, which is one of the bigger rehabs in the country. Mm -hmm. And look, this is just the nature of addiction, Tom. But from time to time, I had to sit down with a mum or dad and explain to them why their son or daughter was never coming home again. Right. So that's the nature of addiction. And so, look, I gained, I guess, a lot of experience in grief counselling and helping people through that. So when I started my private practice, as we invariably do, um, it, you know, people knew me for that. So they were coming to me for grief counselling. So as soon as I did that, Tom, I got lots of phone calls from EAP providers. Um, and what they wanted me to do, for example, was go to a mine site or an oil gas plant after a death on site. That was my introduction to health and safety so not it's a pretty brutal introduction and back then i knew very little uh, about what went on so the first thing that stunned me was how frequently 
those events occurred. I had no idea, but it was week after week, month after month, on-site, counselling team members, family members, really brutal work. But what um, interested me the most was as I was doing that very humanistic work, you know, counselling, um, these organisations, they had other processes they'd begun, things like investigations, you'd know this, um, looking for violators, looking for offenders, looking for breaches of golden rules, so forth. And I couldn't help but think at the time, wow, where else in the organisation do you use that language? But you use it in safety, right? And as a clinician and also you know, a leader myself at the time, it was like, surely our goal here is to bring people along on the journey to create intrinsic motivation so we hear from them. And I thought, wow, that is the last thing I would be doing if I wanted to do that, you know, using that sort of language. And so look, largely through desperation, after week after week, month after month of doing this post-fatality counselling, I started wondering what these organisations were doing the other end. That, that is, what were they doing to prevent harm or, if not harm, at least fatalities, you know? And look, the more I looked, the less I saw things like evidence-based, research-based things that we do. In fact, it seemed to me that everybody was just doing what everybody else did. You know, even these sophisticated global mining companies, just doing what everybody else did. They, they all had... Um, perhaps what I unkindly call the safety platitudes, you know, zero harm, your safety is our highest priority. Um, they were all doing behaviour-based safety. And again, no self-respecting psychologists have used behaviourism since the 1960s. Um, and yet they're using it in, so all of this stuff. So look, I'm part academic, part practitioner. I started looking, again, largely through desperation. Well, what does work? You know, what does the evidence say? And even 20 years ago, there was quite a bit of evidence to suggest that these industries do better than these industries in terms of safety. Even amongst the types of uh, organisations I work with, this one does better than this one. And so I put together an evidence-based program based on the research. Everything we talk about is evidence-based. Um, and thankfully, Tom, we had some early adopters who were prepared to go with a bit of a maverick, you know, and have a look at doing things differently. And look, it took off from there. And that was 20 years ago. I worked with other consultancies, didn't much. Well, you know, everything I've done, I've learned from. Um, but it was time to go my own way because otherwise I was restricted to other people's ideas. And I think it's 12 years ago now we started just consulting. And um, we've grown. We're global now. Um, helping organisations to understand what actually works and just leaving the other stuff. Uh, behind so that's a nutshell version Tom that's how I got into it excellent excellent all right uh, this lovely book number one bestseller I got it on uh, Friday afternoon last week uh, it's only 90 pages and went through it this week went through it this week not just for the interview because it actually um, confirmed a, a lot of things for me so um, congratulations first on its success um it's obviously hit a nerve and uh, well, triggered something in a lot of people um, mm. who have been searching for, I don't know, crystallization of their own ideas, perhaps. Um, there is one thing I, I, I worried about. When I put down the book, I, I started to have this sort of deep think. Obviously, I had too much time on my hand. But um, I, I started to worry that perhaps books like yours do you ever think that perhaps we're just preaching to those who are already converted? 
because mm. to me, everyone has an opinion on safety and most people think their opinions are right. So to me, if I had a completely different opinion than what's in your book, it's going to take a lot for me to go to a bookshop, pay good money for your book, which is going to directly challenge my own view of this world. Um, do you worry about things like that? Yeah, I, I think you've got a very valid point. Um, increasingly, I think we live in this sort of echo chamber world where we, um, through various mechanisms, we tend to attract the information we already agree with. And um, naturally, anybody who's um, perhaps into what's often called the new view of safety, if you like, um, I, I think they would be attracted to what I've written. Um, my hope is, and I do have some evidence for this, that uh, I was very deliberate when I wrote it to make the case for change because I don't believe leaders are going to make a giant leap in their thinking unless they can see some pretty valid reasons for doing so. And so I, I was very mindful, particularly in the early chapters of the book, to make that case for change. What's in it for us? Why would we bother? You know, otherwise, it's just why would you change you know, if nothing ultimately is going to be different? And so I, I did make an effort. So I do know some things that have happened. People who maybe, as you say, Tom, already agree with the new view way of thinking, um, they recognise the case for change has been made quite well. And many have just left it on various desks of uh, maybe their leaders. Um, I, I know some other leaders have bought it for, for other people to deliberately read. And I know that at the very least, it has got some people thinking in different ways. Maybe there's something in this we could do. And uh, increasingly, I do have evidence that that has been the case. I think you're right. I think probably 70, 80% of people who bought my book would um, you know, already um, be prepared, already on that journey, if you like, um, to move from what I call compliance to, to care. But it's, it's a really good point. Hopefully, mate, this podcast will help us reach a few more thoughts. Although maybe maybe people watching this podcast are already of that mindset. <laughs> Who knows? We've got to keep trying, mate. We've got to keep trying. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's it's just one of those things I, I just, you know, I, I, I get a little concerned about because it's um, confirmation bias. That's what I, I, I thought about was I'm starting this lovely collection of uh, literature which supports my own kind of point of view already. And I go, yeah. maybe I should actually get something that actually directly challenges my point of view. But just on that, Tom, I'm sorry to interrupt, mate, just a slight delay there. Uh, as I get around, you know, I'm out most weeks working with various companies. I have noticed increasingly that people have at least heard of, you know, the, the new view or safety two or safety differently or whichever model you want to look at. Yep. Um, there does seem to be a growing momentum. And so I am taking that as a, as a good sign. Yeah, well, the fact that it's number one bestseller kind of indicates that, yeah, yeah, yeah. You've, you've got something there. All right. Uh, in your book, um, saw something very early on in your book. Uh, the, we've always looked at, well, for a long time now, Patrick Hudson's uh, five levels of safety culture or safety maturity and that. Mm. You've adapted that. Mm. Okay. Why? Yeah, very good question. Um, look, before I get into that, can I just say with models in general, whether these, you know, these maturity models or um, to quote the famous statistician George Box, who said, 
all models are wrong, but some are useful. <laughs> and I, I think both Hudson's and my adaptations probably fall into that category. Nevertheless, even 20 years ago, I found Hudson's model very useful with clients, just purely so they could get a little bit of a handle on where they currently sat. I think that's important. Um, so they can just get some sort of understanding. And more to the point, if they understand where they're at, I think Hudson's model helps them, well, helps point them to what maybe they need to do if they're going to actually, you know, mature their, their organisation more. So for me, uh, Hudson's model, brilliant as it is, is over 20 years old now. Mm. And so based on the research that I'd done and the work that I'd been doing and things that I talk about on a regular basis for the book and indeed for our workshops that we run, I thought just a few things need to change for me. First up, um, Hudson had those five steps as discrete boxes, yeah? Um, inferring, I guess, that you're, you're in one or you're in another. And to me, it's not quite like that. Some elements of our culture can be spread across, say, levels two, three, and four. And it doesn't, rarely does it all fit into one neat box. So the way I diagrammed the model was they're all connected and we can, it's not always linear. Um, in fact, it can, it's, it's sometimes in the real world, it's linear on the way up. I tell you what, though, Tom, often it's not linear on the way back because it's not one way traffic here, right? We can yeah, go yeah. backwards very quickly. And off, I've seen organizations who manage to move their way up to level four, say, and then all of a sudden they get a new director who does something incredibly silly. And they don't just sort of slide three, two, they go all the way back. And so the other thing is um, psychological safety was not part of Hudson's model, but we've learned through the research is it's an absolutely crucial aspect of culture. So I added that to it as well. Um, he does talk about in his model, uh, a well-informed workforce and the importance of that, which I agree with, by the way. What he doesn't talk so much about in the model is the other way. In other words, that leaders are really well-informed by the workforce. And to me, I've learned that is even more important. If we're, if we're not hearing from the workforce, um, there's some challenges going on there. So there, even the terminology of the, um, the, the various five boxes, I changed slightly because they fit in better with, what I view is the current research and, and how I can help um, organisations make better sense of them now. So you're right that there are adaptations, but they were they were important ones I felt for the book. Yeah, look, um, I've got to say, that's the best description of the levels I've ever read. So um, that was that, because I never found there was a lot of solid information about them. And you, know, you talked, I, I, I talked to groups or, pretty often about these things and I ask them you're right about not fitting into one box or another I ask them where does your organization currently sit and they'll go oh it's somewhere between this and yeah. that yeah. um the other thing I find and I think you hit the nail on the head in your, in your book when you said um in a bigger organization you can have different levels at different parts of the organization yeah maybe I'm wrong but just tell me your own opinion about this. I've always yeah. believed that's not so much a top leadership type function that determines the culture on a particular site, but it's more the frontline supervisor that has the most direct influence on the culture on a, any particular site. Absolutely. Totally agree. Don't get me wrong. The um, the senior leadership have a role to play. Yeah. Um 
quite a strong role in some ways. Let me give you my take on it, Tom. Um, often I get asked, for, they come companies invite us in, and literally their request is, we want you to change our culture, right? Uh, like it's one thing, first up. Uh, they will then often ask me questions like, all right, how long, Clive? How long, say, to, to move from level two to level four? I don't know, 10 years. There's too many variables, right? And, and so for me, you're right. First up, we don't have one culture. An organization does not have one culture. The bigger the organization is, the more cultures they will have. Um, often organizations have various locations. So there's silos there, the, the different locations, the different functions are likely to have different cultures. I would suggest, Tom, as, as you allude to here, every team has its own culture. And that, of course, is much more driven by the local leadership, those frontline leaders. And so for me, the worst mistake organizations make is they try to change the culture, the culture, by focusing on that culture. And it's doomed to fail. <laughs> and this is where often they, they try their, their 10th culture change initiative. That one also fails and they sort of give up. They regress back to behaviorism. I don't know. And so what I, what I try to help organizations to understand is the best way to change a culture is at that local level. Often one leader at a time, one team at a time, and look, sometimes one conversation at a time. But when you give those local leaders the skills, the you know what they need to thrive in that, the more of those leaders that actually move their own teams up that continuum, the byproduct often is the overall culture starts to shift. Where the senior leaders come in is they can help to enable, give those local leaders what they need and permission um, mm. often to, to actually do that work. So I think you're bang on. The, the most traction we get in culture change is that local leadership. And, uh, you know, when they ask me how long to change the culture, like I said, mate, I don't know, 10 years, how long for one local leader to shift their team or help move their team from level two to level three? I don't know, maybe six months. That's doable. And those goals have to be achievable. You know, the old smart goals thing. Um, make it a smart goal. And that can be done. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I guess moving from old school or safety one to safety two, new view, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess that that at, involves some very senior management buy-in. But yeah, I think I think the greatest opportunity we have to influence any workplace is with the frontline supervisors yeah. uh, once they're given permission to actually, uh, yeah. you know, to do something. That's good. All right. Um, trust. Trust is a big theme in your book. Which is good. It's good. I've, I've always believed that safety is about some very basic sense principles, to be honest. Um, trust, transparency, honesty, uh, no hidden motives and things like that. You know, what I consider being, I don't know, being a decent human being. Um, but you hit the nail on the head with trust as being integral um, to ensure psychological safety in modern workplaces. Okay. Um you develop this 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 program called Care Factor. What's that about? Yeah, great question. And and often people look at the, the name of our flagship program, the Care Factor program, and like I think maybe they imagine it's about now running around, you know, hugging everyone, which which it's not. I think you can get probably sued for that now. But when you look at that that notion of trust, and again, 
I don't talk about trust, Tom, you know, because it's a nice thing or it's a desirable thing. It probably is. It's an evidence-based program. And what we know is, for example, um, its cousin, psychological safety, if you like, the number one predictor of high-performing teams. This is way beyond safety. I'm yet to find a stronger predictor of safety performance than trust. And for, for very clear reasons. As you look at that, my model or Hudson's model, one of the big aspects of that is increasing levels of trust. Because if you have that, you have lower levels of fear. And people know it is safe to report a near miss or an actual incident. It is safe to admit a mistake. And as I say in the book, Tom, you can't fix a secret. Right? And, and all too often, secrets are kept from management because they are frightened of getting into trouble, essentially. Now, the more trust develops, the more that fear dissipates. And we're able then to hear directly from the workforce. Um, there's no fear there of, of any negative consequence. So trust is key. Now, why care? So when we look at the model, and you, you've read the book, Tom, so you, you would know this, but the um, Mayor's model of trust in organisations, this is the most cited uh, research in organisational psychology, three core factors that leaders need to demonstrate consistently to build and maintain trust. Three factors are, number one, integrity. That's probably no surprise to anyone. Intuitively, we understand hard to build trust without displaying integrity. Uh, it's not all about people skills. The second factor there is what the researchers call uh, competence or ability. In other words, we need to be, demonstrate that we are good at what we're supposed to be good at. It doesn't mean we have to be good at everything. Nobody is. I'm certainly not. But we do need to demonstrate to our teams that we're good at what we're supposed to be. Now, the third factor is what the academics call benevolence. Bloody academics, eh? Why use one syllable when you can use four? Um, well, it's a lovely word. It's a love Benevolence is a lovely word. All it means, Tom, is demonstrated care. Yeah. Now, that's the third factor. Now, what we know is all three of those factors are important. In other words, you, you've got to have all three. Two out of three, not enough. For example, I could demonstrate uh, integrity. Uh, I could even demonstrate care for my people. But if I'm hopeless at my job, that is, I'm incompetent, there's no way you're going to create trust. Now, equally, uh, I could be really good at my job, highly competent, demonstrate integrity. But again, if my team perceive that I simply don't care about them, forget trust. It's just not going to happen. Now, why do we single that care factor out? The research is very clear. While all three factors are important, it's that benevolence, that care factor that is the most powerful in overcoming mistrust. And that is the space we most often work in, helping teams or organisations to overcome possibly pockets of mistrust or whole areas of mistrust. You cannot even hope to do that if as leaders we're not demonstrating care. And uh, what's really interesting, Tom, is um, at, at all leadership workshops, I ask these two questions. First question. First up, put your hand up if you believe leaders in your company do care about their teams. Most hands will go up. All right. And I, I believe that is genuine. Second question, put your hand up again if you believe leaders in your organisation are good at demonstrating care. And what's interesting is not many hands go up. And so it's, it's not that, gen, generally speaking, leaders don't care. Sadly, that's not enough. Unless we demonstrate it, how would our teams know 
that they care. And where this becomes evident is where I do the workshop level for, um, training. I ask them question one. That is, do you believe your leaders care about you? Not many hands go up. And think about it. Why would they? How would they know? if we're not actually demonstrating care. So part of what we do, part of the program is helping leaders to understand what that means. Literally, what does it mean to demonstrate care to their teams? So that's where the name Care Factor actually comes from. And that's its relationship with trust. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, mentioned it. Well, you've mentioned a couple of times, behaviourism. It's, it's t- the end of 2022. And, you know, this century, I think, we're supposed to have been a bit more enlightened perhaps last century. Um, why? Why on earth are behaviourist-based theories still being practised in an awful lot of businesses in Australia today? Yeah, and I can hear the frustration in your voice, Tom. And um, I, I kind of share that. Look, there's a few thoughts. Uh, let me just say this about behaviourism. Um, often I believe these things are well-intended. Don't get me wrong. I don't believe people who say do behaviour-based safety, uh, which is based on behaviourism. With any ill intent, I believe it's, um, you know, done with a good intent. Let me just give you a quick background on why I have my beliefs about behaviourism and its offshoot, which is behaviour-based safety. Look, I went through university. I did all my psych training. Um, in the early 1990s, right, I've been doing this a long time, Tom, even then, even then, behaviourism was pretty much dead, right? Um, w- when we study clinical psychology, of course, we go through historically all the different models available, right back to Freud, psychodynamic theory, behaviourism um, through cognitive psychology, all that stuff. And even then, behaviourism was dealt with almost in an historical sense, And I had no time for it then at all. And look, what really sort of put me off behaviourism was even the the godfather of behaviourism himself, Skinner, said very, very clearly, I am not interested in people's cognitions, their thoughts, nor their emotions, especially their emotions. What I mean, only I'm interested in their observable behaviour and manipulating that through various means, often through reward and punishment. First up, mate, I'm not a fan based on that alone because what I know as a a clinician is behaviours come from, generally speaking, our thoughts, our cognitions, our feelings. That's what tends to drive them. They're out of the window in behaviourism. So behaviourism, the research, and it was done, of course, on animals, largely dogs and pigeons, and even then it worked adequately. So, look, if, if you're training your Kelpie, We've got a Kelpie, smart as a whip. Even he can see through behaviourism. All right, he'll do a behaviour very quickly just to get the reward. And he often learns how to get the reward. Forget the behaviour, just do the bare basics. Now, for some reason, still in safety, we still use behaviour-based safety. I do often get practitioners. I get a lot of hate mail about this too. I've got to tell you, Tom, I'm going to get get letters here. they say, hang on, Clive, no, 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 we don't do BBS like that, all right? We, we, we do look at thoughts and we do look at feelings. Okay, so first up, that's not behaviourism. Stop calling it it. That's something else. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. But even with the best intent in the world, if you call it behavior-based safety, just think about it. Whose behavior are we talking about? We're not talking about the board's behavior or the senior leadership team's behavior. We're talking about the workforce behavior. And inherent in that is a blame the worker approach. As Phil LeDuke once called BBS, blame-based safety. And you cannot even hope to progress beyond levels one and two if BBS is your main way of driving your safety because it will always come back to them. Their, their behavior so for those reasons and many more don't forget that it's handy tom it's handy for organizations and outside of safety too because it really helps feed that whole command control approach mm-hmm. it's useful because we've got um, a direct conduit we've got a scapegoat yes so it's it's quite easy to blame it stops senior leadership needing to take any responsibility because it's about them we, we don't so, have to investigate things because uh, we've got a we've got a culprit already lined up Absolutely. And so, look, if there's an incident, this is often very useful. Why did we have the incident? Let's do the incident investigation, right? There's that language again. Ah, we know that person took a shortcut. That's the behaviour, right? Right, we've got the tick in the box. We can punish that person for taking the shortcut. Right, what you've just done there is guarantee there will be no learning because you said it's the fault of that person's behaviour. A more mature approach would be, all right, why did that behavior make sense? Why did, why did it make sense for that person to take the shortcut? Because I absolutely assure you, if it made sense to that person, it will make sense to other people later on. And if we don't make sense of it, you just this is where our repeat incidents come from. We have an incident, we blame people for it, we've got the tick in the box. It will happen again because we didn't take the time and the maturity to actually understand or sense make around it. And that, that's one more reason. Yeah, look, I'm not a fan of BBS. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think, think most people think about uh, behaviour-based um, safety as being just blind, name, blame, shame, you know, pick a victim, don't learn, et cetera. Yeah. But there's a flip side to that. The flip side is incentivising yeah. uh, safety goals. Mm. Um which to me directly undermines the ability to actually achieve meaningful success because it, uh, to me it stops reporting, it stops any of those things because we've now got a direct financial benefit not to tell the truth. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean... If we went behaviorism all the way, let let's let's be cynical. Let's let's bring it back to rote learning. Let's get our workers to repeat the procedures word for word at the start of every shift. I mean, yeah, yeah. 
will it achieve anything? Does it does lead to any greater understanding? The answer is obviously no. No. It literally, Tom, incentivizes, as you say, non-reporting. Literally incentivize. So we, we have a cash bonus, for example, when we reach a magical figure, whether it's, I don't know, a month incident free or that magical figure, one million man hours LTI free. And then when we achieve that, we give them a cash bonus, literally incentivizing. I see this on LinkedIn, Tom, almost on a daily basis, a self-congratulatory post. Um, we've done it. A million hours LTI free. Right. Huge catered event. We've got trinkets. We've got backpacks and caps and key rings and cash bonus. And um, this is this is a true story from fairly recently. A particular organization, they were approaching that magical one million hours, right? And they've already booked the hall, right? It's going to be a massive catered event. They printed out the trinkets. They got these beautiful backpacks emblazoned with a millionaire's LTI free. Now, Tom, just before they actually reach that cutoff point, there's an incident. What do they say? Shh, we've already booked the hall. We've already made the backpacks. And so think what that, because that gets, people find out about that. Think in that moment what has happened to this notion of trust. Safety is our highest priority and so forth. Yeah. It's madness. Oh, it is, it is. Um, I, 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 I've, I know of something that, that happened um, last year uh, with a, a large resource company in Australia or something similar, but we won't go there. Um, in your book, you talk about the fear-based loop. And uh, to me, that's a, a classic illustration of um, behaviour series and how they still pop up in, in, in the safety field. Can you basically, for those who haven't read the book yeah. yet, um, and I say yet, um, can you give us a bit of an explanation about it? Yeah, look, um, the fear loop, and you would have read about the antidote, I guess, there, Tom, which is the trust loop. They are what we would refer to in cognitive psychology as self-fulfilling prophecies. In other words, based on a core belief, we actually make that very thing happen. And literally, we make it happen because of what happens after that core belief. Now, the fear loop is a self-fulfilling prophecy very common amongst those less mature organizations, should we say, the apathetic and the reactive. In fact, let me put it up quickly, Tom. Um, there we go. Um, I'm, I hope that's come up. The fear loop starts with a core belief. And in this case, in the less mature organizations, the belief is, well, people are the problem. You know, the reason we have incidents is because they take shortcuts or they don't follow procedures. They don't speak up. Now, when we view our people as the problem, what we do, of course, is we watch them. We mm -hmm. focus on their behavior. Now, of course, when they're good, listen to the language here, when they're good, as you said before, we'll reward them. You know, there's that cash bonus and so forth. But when they're bad, when they breached golden rules or they violated procedure, we will punish them. This is behaviorism, all right? That's that reward or punishment mentality. Now, over time, what happens is we create a lot of fear of punishment. And even for the good stuff, as it were, the motivation is extrinsic. It's for the it's for the cash. Again, over time, forget learning. How can you learn when people are too afraid to speak up? Learning's out of the window. 
and you've created low trust and high fear. Now, don't forget, Tom, these organizations hurt way more people. They have lots more serious incidents. And when they do that, when they have their incidents, what does that prove to us? Well, people are the problem. And round and round it goes as a (laughs) self-fulfilling prophecy becomes embedded in culture and it's difficult then to shift. Yeah, yeah. I was just just thinking um, the terms offender, rule breaker, punishment, you know, you know where you know where you hear that sort of language? The criminal justice system. Criminal justice. It's got nothing to do with workplaces. No, and think about it because you you would know this too. You you hear this a lot where you go. Often when you speak with the workforce, they view the safety team, unfortunately, as the safety cops, the safety police. Mm-hmm. It's hardly surprising um, when, when they're called safety officers and they're doing investigations. Oh, yeah. I mean, who, who doesn't love being investigated by yeah. an officer, Tom? I, I got that in your book. I, I had to show it to my wife and I said, yeah, who doesn't like to be investigated by an officer about breaking breaking rules? And, and I was like, yep. That's pretty yep. much it. And then we uh, wonder why they don't speak up. Yeah. All right. Um, also in your book, you mentioned a just culture. Um, I'm currently listening to lovely Sydney Decker's book, which is a just yep. culture. Um, okay. Now, a couple of questions. Uh, that I'll make it a double barrel question, we'll say. Um, what's a just culture and what's the difference between a retributive and a restorative just culture. Beautiful. And by the way, there are some uh, free downloads you can get from Sidney Decker um, on his website. Uh, it's it's really um, a good guide, by the way. Uh, it does look at the difference, as you say, Tom, between a retributive culture and a restorative culture. So I'll just throw that. In fact, it's included in my book. It's in the public domain. So I did it. I think I included it. It's a while since I read it, Tom. Um, yes. it's, at the the, back. it's at the back of the book, right? Appendix, so yes. Just, yeah. So what's a just culture? Um, and again, I, I noted at the beginning, when I first started doing work in organisations, um, I'm there doing counselling, and I mentioned those processes that had begun, the investigations, looking for violators, looking for offenders. That is an example of a retributive culture. In other words, we're seeking retribution on these violators and these offenders. It was their fault. What you're doing, of course, is crushing trust and crushing any hope whatsoever of learning. So a just culture is really the opposite of an unjust culture. Uh, That doesn't mean, of course, everybody's, um, well, nobody has any accountability. Far from it. A just culture, a genuine just culture, helps us to actually take accountability for our part, but we realize it's seldom ever one person's accountability. There's often issues with the system. There's often management decisions that were made and so forth. If we can um, look at accountability, we can actually then take learning from it. You cannot even hope to learn um, in a blame culture because nobody's going to tell you anything and so forth. Now, uh, as, as Decker says, our first point of attention after an incident needs to be not on that stuff. It needs to be straight to who are the victims here? Who has been injured? Not just the primary people, but the secondary, family members, team members. We need to put our attention, what needs to happen to make sure they're okay? Uh, We restore 
them, if you will, as best we can, and their well-being. Restorative culture means we look after them first. That's our first point protocol. Now, all too often, we don't do that. We leap to the retribution and we look for blame. And it's all down to the types of questions we ask after an incident. This, by the way, is one of the main areas I've found organisations regress culturally from, say, level three or level four, right back to level two. In other words, they react. And it's almost instinctive. And they're asking questions like, who's to blame? Why did they do that? Why did they take the shortcut? And so forth. As opposed to in a restorative culture, we ask very different questions. What happened? What are we going to learn from this? What do we need to change in our systems to make sure, you know, and so forth? It's just a huge, it's a it's a nuanced change in some ways, but it's just a, a change in where we focus. We move away from who did that to what happened. It takes the heat, it takes the uh, the blame out of it. So I thoroughly recommend, as you're currently doing, um, reading Decker's work around restorative just culture. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Um, I had to think about this this morning. A lot of safety advisor roles, particularly in the resource industry, which we have a lot of in Australia, uh, are generally short-term contract roles, which are short in nature. How does a safety advisor or whatever you want to call them, a safety person, um, try and influence an employer to move from safety one to maybe safety two when they don't have a long-term ongoing interest in that project because they know they're only going to be there for three months or six months. Yeah. That's a, that's a great question, Tom. Uh, look, we could spend an hour talking about that alone, I reckon. Um, I see it actually similar to many CEOs of companies, even if we step outside of safety. Often they these days are brought in for a short-term tenure. And when they when that happens, of course, their bonuses depend on um, not cultural development, not how well their people are doing, but shareholder engagement, right, and shareholder giving money to the shareholder. And so they that's their focus. Now, it's not that different necessarily for the safety team. Um, often what are the, the, the safety people brought in on a short-term role if they're going to look at their next role and they've got their next roles in mind, they'll be wanting to hit the KPIs that the organisation deems as important, which essentially come down to KPIs like lost time injuries, right? The, the lag indicators. By the way, again, for those out there, uh, LTIs, lag, lost, they have absolutely no validity as a comparative tool. That is comparing that team to that team to that team. They literally mean nothing in that sense. You've got to have about 3 billion man hours of data before it, it makes any significant difference at all. But think about it. If you're short term and you know possibly your next job partly depends on your LTI frequency rate, um, that's going to be your focus. And just even if it's inadvertent, even if it's inadvertent, somehow we send the message that if we don't need to report it, let's not report it. Very recent uh, thing here, Tom, is where um, a company had an incident um, and a, sin a significant one. They brought the fella back on light duties 
Now, again, that can work for both parties, you know, if it suits them both. But this was done purely for metrics. In other words, so it didn't count as a lost time injury. Now, when we do that, of course, and at the same time we're saying safety is our highest priority, the workforce see through that very, very quickly. What we're doing is increasing cynicism and we're lowering trust. We've just negatively impacted culture. And I feel for the short-term people, by the way, often they spend most of their time not out there with their teams, do, which is where I believe safety professionals are best deployed, out in the field, helping their people identify and manage risks. Instead, they're often in the office uh, attending to what's often uh, referred to as safety clutter, you know, doing the paperwork, filling in the forms and stuff. They need to do all that to actually tick all the boxes, get the KPI sorted, rather than, I think, where they would be much better served. And I think where most of them would prefer to be out there with their crews. Yeah. Okay. Um, You're quite visible on LinkedIn, Clive. Um, (laughs) As you, as you have to be if you're if 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 you're going to be a consultant, let's be perfectly honest. You have to be, sure. um, but that also attracts uh, some negative stuff. Um, now, look. To be honest, you've said a few things on LinkedIn, and I've been out astounded by some of the the the, the feedback you got. There was one person who basically called you a liar. I saw. There was another person who said, oh, you've got to understand where Clive's coming from. He's a psychologist. He's not a real safety person. I was like, this is outstanding. This is this is really interesting line of thought. Uh, do you get frustrated by the trolls or do you, or do you fit, see it as a challenge to try and win that contest of ideas? Um, I, I have moments of frustration. Um, but for the most part, um, this part of me, Tom, I've got to say, the finds it quite entertaining. Um, I do have a line, though, that I draw, and that is if anybody comes in who is abusive to anybody else on the thread, for example, or just abusive in general, I believe in life we teach people how to treat us. And so if anybody's going to be abusive to any anybody else who's responded to my thread, they're gone. I, I have no compunction in blocking them. I've blocked one or two very well-known advocates of behaviour-based safety, for example, who were incredibly abusive, Um to me and other people on the thread, accusing me all, all manner of things. Um, so I find it mildly amusing at times. I do, where I believe there's a genuine interaction, I try to, um, again, engage in a contest of ideas. I certainly don't claim to be right about everything. I'm not. Who is? And so I, I, I enjoy those discussions. And we have had some really great discussions uh, on the threads that I put up there, some of which are moderately controversial for sure. Um, there are others, again, who just simply don't want to think in a different way. they sunk cost, right? If I've just blown $4 million on a behaviour-based safety rollout, I'm not going to be very happy if somebody challenges the whole notion of it. And so some of them can get quite aggressive in that. I, I get that. Uh, and that's all right. I'll engage with that to a degree. But as soon as the abuse starts now, I block it in a heartbeat, mate. But for the most part, I find it entertaining. Good, good, good. All right. Um something I haven't done before, but I I figure you're, you're up to the challenge. I'm going to give you uh, a, a, few, <laughs> a few terms yeah. and very briefly, because I know I like yeah. to talk and I'm, I reckon you like to talk too. Yeah. But very briefly, just give me your take on all these terms. So I'll, I'll do them one by one so we don't get confused. All right. Yeah, are you ready? 
Yeah. Zero harm. Um, unachievable. Workforce certainly viewed as unachievable. Safety platitude does more harm than good. Okay, good. Zero harm advisor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, largely um, set up to fail. <laughs> okay, good, good. Uh, common sense isn't so common. Um, I'd love somebody to define for me what common sense actually is. I don't even believe it's a thing. I don't believe common sense actually exists. Good. And it's a way of blaming people. Yep. Safety professional. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I've got mixed feelings on this one. I've met some people in the safety field who I would consider to be exceptionally professional people. Uh, Safety as a profession, um, it's, it's... Given what we've just been speaking about, given that much of safety is not based on research or evidence, there's some challenges there. Uh, I know so people like Rob Long, for example, um, have a they don't like safety as a profession. I think that's overly harsh for me, only because I've met some incredibly professional people in the safety field. So I'm a bit gentler on that one. Good. Safety is everyone's responsibility. <laughs> um, crap. Uh, don't get me wrong <laughs> let me just ex- don't get me wrong we all have of course our own accountabilities uh, and that is true accountability is very important it's though often used and you, you know you've seen the stickers in bathrooms yeah the person you're looking at is responsible for you that i think neatly negates responsibility from anybody else including leadership now i prefer safety is our responsibility it's a collective responsibility it is not mine um, if, if, if I'm out sort of uh, on a mine site somewhere and um, I'm doing everything I can do to stay safe, there's no guarantee I will be if there's um, you know, a systemic issue. There's a systemic error that doesn't keep me safe. No, it's, it's a cop-out. Yep. Brings me to the next one, which is pretty similar. You are responsible for your own safety. Again, I've got things in my life I'm responsible for, including my choices, but, you know, even if we say safety is a choice you make, often it's not. Um, often there are other variables. And again, think about people doing repetitive tasks. The odds are they're not consciously thinking anything. And so it's just a yet another way to blame the individual, to blame the worker. It feeds all of that stuff. Good. Root cause. <laughs> In my experience, there is never one root cause. And all too often... It's, it's expedient. That person took a shortcut, right? That's the root cause. Got it. No. Um, there's, there's, why did it make sense again to take that? Where, where, does assist, where does our system actually encourage, enable, or even reward that? There's other things going on here. So, no, I don't believe in a root cause. Nice. Deep dive into data. <laughs> You've been you've been churning through corporate speak here, Tom. Deep dive into data. I, I really love um, simple language, and I try to avoid like the plague those sort of euphemisms and those, that the corporate speak. Don't get me wrong. Um, I like data. Um, uh, I like research. I like evidence. So it, it's good to look at data, but uh, a deep dive into data, you know, it's kind of corporate speak and probably just gets people to switch off instantly. All right. EAP. 
Uh, EAP, um, generally speaking, I found um, I was doing work through EAP providers, uh, as I mentioned earlier. They were the people who sort of sent me out to do. Often um, they know their limitations and they bring other professionals on board. Um, the EAP providers I've dealt with are often really, really thoroughly decent people. In the safety industry, not that many of them maybe understand the industry that well. Um, I think organisations um, almost have to use EAP providers where there's so little trust within the organisation themselves. People want to talk to somebody from outside. People still worry, though, even about talking to EAP providers if they believe what they're talking about is going to get back to their employer. So there, there's some areas there that I think need attending to. But overall, um, I've met enough people in EAP um, who are thoroughly decent, knowledgeable people. Good. Very last one, resilience training. <laughs> I've got some major issues with that. Don't get me wrong. Um, I think resilience is a skill that we can all learn. We, we, talk about, we talk about it in terms of cognitive psychology consciously reframing events, you know, to, to get better results. But what I've learned, Tom, this is my biggest bugbear, is, um, well, two things, briefly, briefly. Uh, number one, a lot of organisations bring people in to do resilience training so they can keep loading their people up with stress. <laughs> no, that's, it's not their resilience that's the issue. Change the system so you stop stressing people out. The second issue is many people these days who are actually doing the resilience training are not psychologists. And resilience really is a field of psychology, a particular area of study, looking at people that overcame adversity and didn't just survive, but thrived. It's a whole area of research. And so these days when resilience training is being done, it's, it's become a bit more like, you know, you've got to be happy all the time. <laughs> which is a crappy goal anyway. Nobody's happy all the time. Happiness is a, a state that fluctuates. It's all about being optimistic or, or positive thinking. That's not what resilience is about. And so two things, why people bring us in, uh, people bring resilience training in in the first place and how it's actually facilitated. Don't try and make people happy all the time. It's not going to happen. Good, good. <laughs> all right. I'm going to get a lot more hate mail now, John. <laughs> All right. Um, look, Clive, um, time's, time's just about calling. So I just want to say thanks again for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I look forward to speaking to you again soon, hopefully. You bet, Tom. Enjoyed it. Thanks, right. mate. Thanks for listening to Health and Safety Conversations with Tom Bourne. Until next time, stay safe and enjoy the rest of your week. 